Today, I just decided to go back to the basics. Just go straight to the basics. And, and so I've, I've based this lesson on the question, how good is good enough? And it comes from this little book that I came across about 20 years ago, written by Andy Stanley. And he, and he asks this question, how good is good enough? And I usually teach from a passage in the Bible or a book of the Bible, but today I'm just going to come out from Andy's book. Now, I've, I think I've shared what I've taught tongue-in-cheek, and I think it's interesting that why is it that it's plagiarism when you copy one person's work and claim it as your own, but when you copy a bunch of people's work, it's called research. <laughs> I'm not claiming this as my own, but I am definitely taking a significant portion of this directly from Andy's thoughts and, and display it on you because I couldn't, have, I couldn't have said this any better. So with that said, um, let's, get, let's get started. So, Sunday school class, if you will, teacher of six-year-olds, and the teacher is asking the question, how do you get to heaven? She says, if I sell my car and I sell my house, sell my husband's boat, uh, I, and I just sell everything I have and give it to the church while I go to heaven. And the kids are silent. No one's willing to say a thing. And she says, what if I clean the church every day? You know, mowed the yard and took out the trash. Would that get me to heaven? Silence again. What if I was kind to animals and loved my family and gave kids to candy at the church? Would that get me to heaven? No one answered. So she, she laid it out there again. How, so how do we get to heaven? And one little boy spoke up and said, you have to be dead. <laughs> I can just hear Ephraim or Asher or Luke coming out with that hard reality. You definitely have to be dead to fully experience heaven. But I want to suggest to you that there's this age-old theory. It's the most popular by far about how one gets to heaven. And if it's so popular, why should we even question it? If there are such highly educated, highly accomplished, very smart people that are banking their eternity on this age-old theory, then who am I to question this? I'm not that smart. Why shouldn't I just lean on their wisdom? Because it doesn't make sense. That's what I came to the conclusion of. It, it, you know, it doesn't survive the slightest bit of scrutiny when you really think about it. The theory flows something like this. Somewhere there's a good God in a good place, and it's reserved for good people. He or she goes by all sorts of names, behind all major religions, and therefore everyone has a legitimate shot to go to heaven. To be there, you just have to be good. And each religion has its own definition of good. Ultimately, the theory holds that each man and woman must do certain things or not do certain things in order to qualify. Does it make sense? I don't think so, and neither did Andy Sandley when he presented this conundrum here. Let's look at why it doesn't make sense. Now, these 
numbers have actually changed. But most Americans today, if you rely on the, the survey that I researched on the internet, I checked my numbers, seemed like a, a, a well thought um, survey, and that 73% of Americans believe in heaven. Just slightly less, 62% believe in hell. The interesting thing is that people that are unaffiliated with any religious organization or a church, if you will, only 37% believe in heaven. And even fewer, 28%, believe there's a hell. Those numbers, sadly, you know, among churched people, it used to be 90% of Americans believed in heaven. It's down to 73% in just about 15 or 20 years. How the perspective has changed. In some people in other parts of the world, they think that you come back and you get another shot. You come back in another life or even another form. Maybe an animal. Some other form. And... You get another shot to be good. Catholic theology of purgatory sort of is a different swing on that in that you don't come back, but you go to this other place and you suffer for a while. That you're, you're uh, burned like metal until you're refined and then you are clean and sanctified enough to go to heaven. But the common denominator in all this is that it relies on how we live our lives, or frankly, how good we live our lives. Most people would answer, if God asked, why should I let you in? Why should I let you into heaven? They'd say, I've always tried to, or I never, or I did my best to. That's how they would answer. But it was always about the fact that they attempted to do. To do. To do good. Why? Because they believe that good people go to heaven. That's why. Be good and everything will be fine. That's the everything is fine theory. Sort of alluded to this morning. So, that's settled. Let's go back to living our lives. Solomon said, a good name is better than a good ointment. And the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, because that is the end of every man, and the living takes it to heart. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. I've talked about it a few times when I've been asked to speak at funerals, and it's really, uh, it might seem morbid, because what Solomon ultimately is saying here is it's more valuable to go to a funeral than it is to go to a party. It's a better thing for you. And why does he say that? Because he says here at the very end, because that's the, every, that's the end of every man. And you take it to heart. Sometimes we're driven to think about the fact that we all die. And in this case, a funeral is one of the most obvious places we get driven to that reality that someday that will be us. Maybe we see a tragic news story. Maybe we even have our own brush with death, so to speak, some near miss. And we suddenly, we start to worry that maybe things aren't going to be fine. Maybe, just maybe, we're not good enough. So this begs the question, how good is good enough? Where is the line? Where is the standard? 
And who sets the standard? God set the standard? If God sets the standard, wouldn't God make it clear how good is good enough? If our eternity relies on this, wouldn't a roadmap sort of help us on this journey? You see, preachers and rabbis and priests, lamas and ayatollahs, they're all in the business of how. They tell us how to get there, right? So why aren't more people confident? Why, when most people are asked if they'll go to heaven, is their answer, well, I sure hope so. I sure hope so. Even people that we think are really good answer this way. How can it be? Isn't that sad? Because no one can tell us how good is good enough. That's why it comes out this way. Here's the logic behind this everything is fine theory. Number one, it's the most fair system. If we study hard, we get good grades. If we work hard, we get promotions and raises and awards. If we practice well, we get to participate. If we're good, we go to heaven. Follows the logic. It's all performance driven. Number two, this proves that there's a good God. Bad people don't go to heaven. If they did, probably wouldn't be good. But how can we all go? We all think we're good enough. Almost nobody believes, interestingly, that they're going to hell. Maybe not convinced that they're going to heaven, but almost no one believes they're going to hell. Let's take a look at God being good. And we definitely need to understand that God is good. But life isn't always good. It's why people will ask, if God is so good, then why? Why is there pain and suffering? Why are there storms and violence and evil? Why would a good God let a little boy die of cancer? How? And if God is capable of delivering heaven, then why doesn't he take care of us here on earth? Here's a question. God is so good, why didn't he do a better job of laying out his expectations for us? Why doesn't he communicate with us directly? Do we have to live our whole lives wondering if we've met his expectations? Why are we left with so many different religious leaders telling us different things? There are so many formulas, and they can't all be right. Why so much disparity? Because these ideas come from men. Men who claim to know what God wants. Why so much disparity? Again, come from men. Think about it. Some people believe that they are 
securing their place in heaven by blowing up buildings, flying planes into skyscrapers. Who are you to judge? They're simply following their leaders and they believe their God is good or their version of God is good. Their God good? They think so. Is our God good? We probably think so. But if the way I measure good will get me to heaven, I can assure you that terrorists won't be there. How do we figure that good people go to heaven if good is a, is a relative thing? We need a list. We need a perfect definition of good from God, not from men. We need a map. Can you imagine you're a runner and you go to, you're invited to participate in this race and you go and you find out that there is no starting or finish line. There's no direction. There's no course. There are no forks or mat arrows or anything directing you to where you're going. There's no distance. Just run until we tell you to stop. Until you're finished. Would you run a race like that? Would you come back next year <laughs> and would you invite your friends to participate in this kind of a race? What about a, a syllabus as if in a college course? What, what if you came to a college course and the professor shows up on the first day and he says the final exam is 100% of your grade? Now, class dismissed until the final. No syllabus, no textbooks, no teaching. It's unrealistic, isn't it? Sure it is. But if the next life depends on your test score in this one, what do you really have to go on? need a job description. You know, we wouldn't run a race like I just described. We wouldn't take a college course that I just described, and we wouldn't go to work for someone likely without some sort of a job description. We'd want to know what it is we do, so why would we stick with a God that is just so ambiguous? Good people go. God is good. We need more input. So why not let our conscience tell us? First of all, it's obvious. It's not consistent. And one conscience can be different from another. The Taliban think that women should have no rights. And my wife told me this morning to make sure I said that I don't agree with that. <laughs> I, I don't agree with it. Both consciences can't be right. They can definitely both be wrong. Your conscience might tell you when you're doing something wrong, but it's not in the place to assure you when you're doing something right. It doesn't tell you how perfect you need to be. And if it did, religion wouldn't exist at all. We'd have our conscience. And we'd know exactly where we stand. What about listening to our religious leaders? They know. Their full-time job. You remember when people thought the world was flat? Remember when the church condemned the notion that the universe was endless? In fact, in 1633, Galileo was forced by the church to renounce his beliefs about the universe. Was that good? Was that right? 
Shouldn't church leaders know better? Aren't they the ones to tell us what's right and what's wrong? Even our person, personal morality changes. You don't think so? The example of a, a man that lived with his girlfriend before marriage in his 20s. Interestingly enough, in his 50s, he would not allow his daughter to do the same thing. What changed? If our moral compass is perfect, then why does it recalibrate so often? What about the Bible? Does it tell us how good is good enough? Many think so. That's why they call it the good book. After all, the Bible has the Ten Commandments. But there's never a promise that connects these commandments to heaven. Besides that, there are way more than 10 if you just read Exodus alone. If you hang your hat on the Old Testament, you have to do it all. It's no help. What about the New Testament? It's full of stuff about heaven and hell. Problem is, again, there's no absolute standard for good. Romans chapter 3 and 23, very familiar verse to all of us. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And just a little bit before that in Romans verse 10, it says there is no one righteous, not even one. What? None? Tells us flat out nobody is good enough. Nobody. So what's the point? There isn't a list of to-dos that assures us heaven that we can look at in the Bible. Paul tells us there's no one good enough anyway. All right. So let's use any of the resources that we've talked about, our religious leaders, the Bible, our conscience. Use any one of them you want to and establish your standard of good. And assume that it is a good standard. It tells you exactly what good is. The question is, what's a passing grade? 90%? 70%? 51%? Nobody's perfect, right? What if you missed it? one percent. Is that fair? That a person that did 90% good is no better than someone that did 51%? Or will we all just aspire only to do 51% because it's good enough? Helped me a lot in high school. Are we graded on a curve? What if we run out of time? You know, we're planning to do more good, but we just died suddenly. Surely we'll still go to heaven because God knew we meant well. He knew that we were going to do that good, but you don't know, do you? We still cling to the idea, though, that good people go to heaven. Who goes? Everybody? Nobody? Either way, why should we be good at all? Wouldn't it be nice if this will be the 
for the techie guys in the room that it wouldn't it be nice if God gave us updates like like Microsoft 7.0, like uh, goodness 7.0. They just plugged in these updates and kept us informed. Here's where you are and here's where you need to be. And so you got to speed it up because, by the way, I've scheduled your death for two weeks from now and you're running out of time. Another question cynically is why rely on prophets from 2,000 years ago? Why be silent for so long about what it is that he wants? So the biggest problem with good people go is that it contradicts the teachings of Jesus. Jesus taught us that God wasn't going to give us what we deserve. His teachings were a total departure from any previous teachings. And why do you think the Jewish leaders wanted to kill him? That very reason. Jesus taught that God loved bad people too. And that bad people could go to heaven. Jesus associated with prostitutes, tax collectors, the ne'er-do-wells. Jesus said he had the power to forgive our sins. And Jesus also said that even the best at being good weren't good enough. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Pharisees were the best of everyone in Jesus' time. They were professional do-gooders. They were the best at keeping the law. They told everybody else what good was. So imagine how they felt when Jesus said, you're not going to heaven, and in fact... You folks out in the crowd listening are going to have to even be better than they are to get there. Imagine how tough that was. If the Pharisees weren't good enough, who is? Who's good enough? The average person doesn't have enough time to be that good compared to the time that the priests and the scribes and the Pharisees had to devote. I know I don't. And I haven't killed one bull or one lamb to fix it either. Jesus changed the rules. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, if you just thought about committing adultery... You were already guilty. You've heard that the ancients were told you should not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. So now if you're just angry, you're in serious trouble. Anger equals murder. Gumbags can go to heaven. Jesus didn't support the good people go theory at all. His standards were even higher than Moses's. He even appears to contradict himself that the Pharisees... We're not good enough, but obvious sinners were. Let's summarize some of what Jesus taught. The best aren't good enough. Equal thoughts equal sin. And bad people can go to heaven. You know, Jesus really turned everything upside down when he was dying on the cross. 
One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him, said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. You know, crucifixion was the most shameful and painful form of execution in that time. Probably, arguably, in mankind's history. And it was reserved for the really really bad guys. Look at the conversation that Jesus had here with these two criminals, though. This first criminal says, come on, tough guy. You know, you're the Messiah. You're the Christ. Save yourself. And by the way, take me with you. And the other criminal says to his partner in crime, if you will, that, listen, we're being punished justly for what we did. Jesus didn't do anything wrong. And then in verse 42, this criminal dares to ask Jesus for mercy. Did this guy have the right to ask for that? Had he lived a good life? Even he admitted that he had not been good. And he was out of time. He couldn't undo it. He couldn't fill the gap. If Jesus believed that good people go to heaven, then why would he tell this man in verse 33 that today you will join me in paradise? What if this man had raped your sister? What if he had committed some offense to you and you were there to watch this guy pay for his crime? And you hear Jesus make that promise. The justice, is it fair? Do bad people go to heaven? Evidently, Jesus thought so. You see, Jesus didn't come to represent the God of good people. Another reason why the Jewish nation wanted him dead, the leaders. You know, and if you consider basically everybody today says nice things about Jesus. Even Muhammad, the founder of Islam, believed that Jesus was a prophet had nice things to say about him, but if you embrace the thought that good people go, then you cannot embrace the teachings of Jesus. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus said, I am the way, not a way. Everybody else is saying it doesn't matter how you get there or what you subscribe to as long as you do good. If you believe in a good God and you do good, everything is fine. So who does go to heaven? Forgiven people go to heaven. It's that simple. Forgiven people go to heaven. You hear Christians say that. That we're not perfect. But we are forgiven. And it's true. Christianity offers some clear and compelling answers to all the questions that have been laid out. Either Jesus is or isn't who he claimed to be. Either Jesus is or is not 
the Son of God. There isn't any middle ground. There's absolutely no ambiguity there. If you discovered that someone was not who they said they were, would you revere them? Would you give them a pass? Would you associate with him? You either have to openly say that Jesus is the Son of God or say that he was a liar. There's no in-between. Obviously, his apostles and disciples believed or they wouldn't have been willing to die. I mean, clearly, would you be willing to die for a lie that you knew was a lie? The resurrection was the centerpiece of Jesus' teachings. He came to birth for one primary reason. That was to forgive us of our sins. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. With God, forgiveness didn't come without sacrifice, so Jesus had to die. But Jesus was the once and for all sacrifice. He is the Lamb of God. God's firstborn. God's very best given to humanity, and Jesus paid it all. People don't want to own up to the fact that God will punish us for our sins, for our offenses against Him. God hates sin. It offends Him. And someone had to pay. So what caused all of this? Real simple, it's our selfish nature. Call it sinful nature, call it flesh, call it any number of things, but the reality is it's because we're selfish. Our perfect little child was born, and then all of a sudden we have to start saying no to some things. And then... More rules came because our precious little angel seemed to have a mind of his own. And we're horrified. Something inside of him eventually is brought out because we establish a standard. And that's how it is with us and God. We want it our way because we are selfish, we are sinful. Romans 3.20 points out here. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. God didn't create, this law didn't create our selfish nature. It reveals it. That's what he's saying here. Take a look in the mirror. This was the purpose of the law. Look at the mirror. I think I'm a pretty good guy. But if any sin separates me from God, I'm in trouble. You know, I'll be honest. Sometimes I'll see a really nice pickup truck and think, man, I wished I wished I had a I wished I had that guy's truck. Or gal. And I have to be careful to make sure that doesn't go into envy. You know, how easy it is it to envy, look at someone else and see what they have in this world and say, gee, I wish, and, and just be consumed by it. Where it's not just a nice to have, it becomes something more. But even as we're aware of our sin, we continue to do things at the expense of other people. Our selfishness 
chokes the life out of marriages. It drives wedges between father and son. It creates bankruptcy. It fuels ambition, often to self-destruction. It's a taskmaster. We are slaves to our selfish nature. And we need a savior. We need to be saved. We need to be delivered from this thing that just rages inside of us, that we fight all of the time. We need to be forgiven of all the pain and the hurt that we've caused others. And we've caused ourselves as a result of our own sins. The law convicts me of my sin. It doesn't save me. The law doesn't help me overcome my sin. The law doesn't promise forgiveness forever. So what do I do? The law could not do weak as it was through the flesh. God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. Jesus came to be both forgiver and deliverer. No one else had ever claimed that. We're lawbreakers. We break our own civil laws and we break God's laws. To believe that good people go to heaven assumes that we just need to be better people. Christianity, Christianity teaches that we need a savior. Anyone who wrote a book in the Bible understood that. And it's taught very plainly. That's why they didn't write a to-do list. We need a Messiah, not a to-do list. People pick a religion like they pick a flavor of ice cream. What do I like? What makes me feel good? What makes me comfortable? How about asking yourself, what is the truth? Now, this may seem unfair, but it doesn't make it untrue. What's true in reality isn't always fair. Ask me about my relationship with referees when my children were playing sports. Life isn't fair. People will adopt the attitude that Christianity isn't fair, or at least Jesus' version, Jesus' version of it isn't. And so it's not true. But how much more fair could Christianity be? When did you ever complain about getting more than you deserved? Don't get caught in the trap of a list. Religions have lists. Islam has them. Judaism has them. Hinduism has them. Frankly, Christians can have them. Try to wrap up here. Imagine I'm watching a baseball game. My son's pitching. I'm standing behind home plate. So I've got a clear view of what's going on. It's the bottom of the ninth inning. In other words, it's the end of the game. There are two outs. The bases are loaded. It's a full count. There's one pitch left. Strike ball or a hit or a ground out or whatever. But this game is likely going to end here because my son's team is ahead by one run. All he has to do is strike this guy out. One pitch. The pitch comes in. From where I'm standing, it sure seems like a ball to me. But the umpire says, strike, you're out. And I'm like, thank you, Lord. Thank you. What, for fairness? No, for mercy. I didn't demand fairness from God in that situation. I thanked him for his mercy. How do you think the father of the batter felt? Think he thought it was fair? 
If we're, if we're such fair-minded people, then why don't we buy into socialism as a whole? And if you do, it's okay. Go ahead and bring all your stuff up here and give it to me. I'll, I'll take care of it. I'll redistribute it as I see fit. But we don't. Yet we demand fairness from God. This sense of fairness that we have. Do we want God to give us what we deserve? Do we really? God gave us what we needed, not what we deserve. He gave us mercy. He gave us grace. And he gave us the freedom to choose. For this choice to have any significance at all, there has to be consequences for making the wrong choice. The right choice, the right choice leads to heaven. The wrong choice leads to hell. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God, they introduced sin into the world. God didn't. And from that point forward, people have disobeyed. Now, it seems that God maybe had two choices at that point. To start over or to grant mercy and grace. And that's what he did. And you may say that, why should we pay for Adam and Eve's sins? Well, I would tell you that we don't. We suffer the consequences of that sin. But we're not obligated and we do not pay for that sin. You'll still want to complain about it. Who pays for the consequences of your sin? God suffered the day Adam and Eve disobeyed. And he suffers when we disobey. But then, after Adam and Eve introduced sin into the world, God did something very, very unfair. He sent his son to die for our sins. For sins he did not commit. For sins that are yours and mine. When sin came into the world, life became unfair. And God sees our sin as a debt we just can't pay. And so there's no point in him asking us to. We're powerless. We're without hope unless someone intervenes on our behalf. Someone who is sinless. Good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people go to heaven. Christianity, or at least Jesus' version of it, offers forgiveness. Everyone is welcome. Everyone gets in the same way. Everyone can meet the requirements. The only question to be answered in your heart is, is Jesus the Christ truly the Son of God? you truly believe that? Making that confession and having true faith is what will get you to heaven. You ask Jesus to forgive your sins, you will be forgiven. Now, I held you for a long time. I'm going to wrap up with a few more thoughts. Thank you for hanging with me. This is the one thing I don't like about this book because that's where the book ends. It stops cold at that very hard and obvious truth. And I don't know if Andy just wanted to key on the beginning. Like I said, we, we, I want to go back to the basics, the very basic thing. And, and, and so maybe he just wanted to simply point out the cornerstone of our salvation. But in Romans 6, verse 1, Paul asked the question, and I'm putting it in my own words here. After we say we would believe... After we say we believe, should we just go on about living our lives as we did before? 
And Paul says, no, absolutely not. A thousand more lessons could be taken from here. Part of the reason why I had a struggle reigning in this lesson today. Belief is a beginning. It's not an end. Jesus commanded that we be baptized. That we bury the old person and arise a new person. We rise from this water, a new person, making a commitment to no longer serve ourselves, but to serve Jesus. We serve out of love and gratitude, not to check off items off of a list. It's a beginning. It's not an end. This book demonstrates to us that there's nothing we can do to earn our salvation. Jesus paid the price for us. It's done. It's over. But true faith in Jesus is the foundation of your walk with God. Without it, nothing you do or say is going to be acceptable to God. The Bible clearly teaches that belief is a beginning and not an end. Baptism is an act that washes away your sins and allows you to arise as a new person. Acts chapter 22 and verse 18, it's like being born again. We're buried with Jesus through baptism. The old person is buried, new person arises. Just as Jesus died with sin and rose again. Sin was dead, it was buried, it was over. And that's what we're emulating through baptism. The death of the old, the rising of the new. Our sins are washed away in that process. Loving God with all your heart is an every minute response to his loving grace. From that love will spring acts of kindness and goodliness. It's not us. It can only come from the goodness of God. It's not our own deliberate, calculated doing. It has no value. It has no merit. Living in a way that God would have us to live is the appropriate response to his mercy. Paul says that. We've mentioned in Romans. He talks all the way up through 1 through verse 11, or chapter 11 about the why. And then in verse, or chapters 12 through 16, he talks about how. And the first thing he says is, in light of God's mercy, in light of all that God has done, to offer yourselves as living sacrifices. Put the old man to death. Rise a new creature. You know, if we just study God's word daily, we'll be amazed. Not in a literal sense, there aren't voices in my head, but God speaks to me through his word. His will for me becomes more and more clear the more and more I dive in.